This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey. Just as it's written, he sat on it. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to see Christ this morning as he truly is. We want to know him as that suffering servant that came and gave his life for sinners like us. We ask, Lord, that you would be gentle with us this morning. Enabling us to hear you, and to see you, and to worship you. That's why we're here. That's why we've gathered. We want to know you as our God, and Christ as our Savior. We want to know the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. We know, Father, that you must do this work, and so we ask that you would, by your grace and mercy, show us yourself today. Show us your King. Show us that we're your people. We might rightly worship you in Christ's holy name. Amen. Good morning. I like the sound of babies. I do. I love it. I don't like it when they're crying really loud, but I love hearing it there. I love hearing them make the sounds during the, the music. You know, for mu- much of the history of the church, families gathered. They didn't divide people up into, you know, toddlers and preteens and post-teens. And they just, everybody came together and they worshiped. And I, I love families coming in and worshiping. This is what God desires. If you're an adult and you're whining, then that's another issue. We need to talk about that. So I'm not sure what the problem is, but we can talk about it. We, we get to look at a passage today. If you have your Bible, open up to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26. And we're going to look at Jesus, this king. Uh, he, was, he is, was, is the Savior, and, and the Jewish people for centuries waited for him. And they, they, they looked for him because he had been prophesied to over and over again that, that he was going to come, a savior for them, for their people, for their nation. But that idea of a savior, the hope of someone coming to redeem fallen man is not exclusive by any means to the Jews. We've seen this narrative of, of a savior coming in the form of a superhero, I mean, we, that probably makes more sense to the culture. We use the word superhero rather than a savior. And this predates all the great, the great Greek myths, and it certainly permeates the modern culture today, our comic books, television series, movies. This idea that, that someone's got to come and make things right because things are a mess, and we know they're a mess We see it, we see the sickness, and we see the war, and we see suffering, and we see death, and we hate it, and we know it's not right, and so we say, where where is the Savior? And so throughout all of human history, this storyline is prevalent of a superhero or a Savior coming. Hercules, 
son of Zeus was an ancient version of our modern-day Superman. I mean, there was really no one else that could outdo Hercules, as there's no one else who can outdo Superman, I guess, until lately. Now, Batman can, but I don't understand that either. You know, we, we have the Avengers, we have the Justice League, we have X-Men, we have all these superheroes that are fighting generally for justice. They're trying to make things right because things aren't right. And it's the same, it's the same storyline generally throughout history as well, that things are good and man of his own doing makes a mess of things, usually leading to our impending death. And then in comes the superhero. And you can put whoever superhero you like most into that. In comes a superhero. And the superhero uses physical force, power, to make things right and save the world. And everybody's at peace again. The Jewish hopes at the time of Christ were very much along this narrative. They, they were looking for the son of David, what they called him. They were looking for a savior to come in and use physical force, power from God, to destroy their enemies and liberate Israel and make Israel a prominent world power again as it was under David and as it was under Solomon. And so they waited for this messianic king to come. And he came. They just didn't recognize him. This messianic king that we know to be Christ, he came the first time around with a much different approach than anybody expected. Not only did he not come as they expected, but he understood things that people then and even people today do not understand. He understood that, that man's greatest problem, it wasn't political or economic. That man's greatest problem is relational. It's us not relating to God rightly. And he understood that man's greatest enemy, it's not, it wasn't Rome and it wasn't the Sanhedrin, and it was no enemy that you could conjure up today, it's the human heart. And so this first Messiah did come, but not as they expected, and I would argue not as many expect today either. Last week, we had a chance to, to go into the house of Simon the leper, and if you were here with us, you remember it was Saturday, it was the Saturday before the Passover, and they're reclined at this table in Simon's house, and Mary is there, and Martha, and Lazarus, who was dead and now is alive, and the disciples are there, and we had this magnificent expression of love by Mary as she takes this alabaster jar of, of pure nard, perfumed oil, and she breaks it open and she pours it on Jesus' head and his body and his feet, thousands and thousands of dollars worth. And she does that in preparation for his imminent death. And from our passage today, I, I want to I continue with this story. And I want, by God's grace, I want you to see who this king really is. And I want to see, for you, us to see who his people are. And those are the only two points I want to, I want to ask those questions. What king is this? I mean, what is he really like? I dare say so many pulpits today are preaching a Christ that's not real. Certainly not according to Scripture. And the second question I want to ask and answer by God's grace is, whose king is this? Who is he governing over? Who is he sovereign over? Who are his people? So if you're patient with me, I pray you will be. I want to look at this passage in light of that. What king is this and whose king is this? First point, what king is this? Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees 
and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So it's Sunday now, it's, it's an exact week from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this large crowd, remember he was in Bethany, only two miles away, this large crowd was following him, they were coming with him to Jerusalem, and, and people in Jerusalem get word that Christ is on the move and he's coming. And so you have thousands of people in Bethany and thousands in Jerusalem coming out and they meet him somewhere in the middle of this two-mile trek. When they heard he was coming, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. There was, there was great excitement and great anticipation, excitement that, that Jesus might actually be the Messiah, the son of David, that he might actually be that, and great anticipation that the people would be actually set free, set free from Rome, and set free from the Sanhedrin and the religious powers and the oppression. So there's excitement and there's anticipation, and they take these palm tree branches, which may sound weird to us, but they understood it. And we know from Matthew chapter 21, they also took their cloaks or their outer garments, and they, they threw these branches down, and they threw these cloaks down for this mile or two mile stretch, and Jesus walked on them. You say, well, that, that sounds even more odd. Why would they do that? You know why they did that? It's what they did for royalty. It's what they did for a king. It's what they did for a conquering king who was returning from war. And so here you have, and, and this is not a small crowd. There are estimates that on the Passover feast at the time of Christ, there were over one million people in Jerusalem. And so it says the masses go out from Jerusalem, and the masses are coming from Bethany, and they come together. There are likely tens of thousands of people bringing palm tree branches and their cloaks, and they're throwing it before this carpenter from Nazareth. It's an extraordinary thought. But then look what they say at verse 13. They say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna, help, I pray, is what it literally means. Save, I pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You say, I I just heard that read. You did from Psalm 118. Every single man, woman, and child, every Jew at that time would have known what they were talking about. This, this, This statement comes from the Hallel, and that's Psalms 113 to 118. And, and that was read and sung by the temple choir during every major feast. In fact, Psalm 118.25 declares boldly, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You know what they're saying? By the thousands, people are saying, He's the Christ, He's the King, He's the Savior, He's the Son of David. Thousands and thousands are saying this. They are unequivocally declaring Jesus Christ to be the king. It says, even the king of Israel. Why would they they say that? Why would they think such a thing? Why would they go out with palm trees, palm tree branches and, and cloaks and cover the road? You say, well, that's what Jesus has been saying all along. And it has been. For three years, he's been teaching from town to town. He's been going from town to town, sharing the gospel, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and I am that king. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. So he's been teaching this, but not only has he been teaching it, he's been authenticating it with his miracles. And we've seen that build up 
until just a couple weeks ago when we read about Lazarus and the man who was in the tomb for four days and Jesus makes him alive. Look at verse 18. It says, For this reason, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. What sign? The, the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. Because no one can do that. I mean, no one could do that. That man was decomposing and Christ said, Come out. And he came out. And he lived. You understand the push. These people are getting it. I mean, they're getting it. They're thinking, no, wait a minute. We've heard stories about this man. This man has given sight to the blind. He's healed the lame. He's touched the leprous, and they are, they're healed completely. We've heard that this man can actually calm the wind and calm the sea. And now we know, because many of them were there, now we know this man can raise the dead. And so they're thinking to themselves, well, if he can do that, if this guy can do this, then, then he can handle Rome. And he can certainly handle the Sanhedrin. He can set us free. He can become our king and liberate us once and for all. Their thinking is good. They get, they're finally getting and grasping the power of Jesus Christ. They're getting it. And yet their timing and their hearts are completely misplaced. Their timing is off. They expect that Jesus is going to enter that city. He's going he's to go into the temple and he's going to make himself king And they're ready to make him king. They're ready to support him. But like Caiaphas in chapter 11, they're right, unwittingly so. But their timing is off. When Christ said, it says that Christ came to save the people. He came in the name of the Lord. And he is the true king of Israel. So they're completely right. But they have a picture of a king that doesn't match what Christ is doing this time around. And it's really important. This is his first coming. There's going to be a second coming which is going to match their expectations. We'll see that later. So all these statements are true. The question is, why does Jesus respond this time? This wasn't the first time. Remember in John chapter 6, when Jesus was in Galilee, the people tried to make him king, and what happened? He just slipped away. You know, he did that that Jesus move that he does. He just kind of moves away, and no one can get him. Why now? Why doesn't he rebuke them? Why doesn't he say no? This time... He actually accepts their honor, and he walks on that royal path. So upset are the Pharisees. We're told this from the exact same episode in Luke chapter 19. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teach you, rebuke your disciples. He said, rebuke them. You hear they're saying? They're calling you king. They're saying, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he says, rebuke them. And Jesus answered, I tell you. If these people were silent, you know this, the very stones would cry out. If the people weren't going to say it, the stones would say it, and the dirt would say it, and the trees would say it, because God was proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. This was his triumphant entry into the city. Such a glorious episode in human history. Look at verse 14. This is Jesus' response. Almost as odd as the The palm tree branches and the cloaks. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now that's hard, and that's hard for many of us. It made sense to them. It was symbolic in their time, but we hear that and we say, what what is going on with the donkey? I mean, most of us don't think of donkeys as, as something that a king would ride, and that was the exact point. 
It was a prophecy being fulfilled from Zechariah 9, verse 9, an exact prophecy in great detail of how the Messiah would come to his people. I'll read to you again, Zechariah 9, 9. We just heard it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Listen to this. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. Centuries before, we're told that the Messiah would come on the back of a donkey. And it reveals the type of king that Jesus really is. He is what? He's righteous. He has salvation that he comes to bring. And then it, I love the most important pieces is that he is going to be a humble king. That's why it says, fear not. Fear not. Well, wait a minute. He's righteous and we're not. We ought to fear. He says, no, I am righteous and you are not, but fear not because I, the humble king, bring you what? I bring salvation. He brings hope to his people then and to people today. He says, I'm coming not to judge you, not the first time. He did not come to judge. He came to bring grace and mercy and forgiveness to a people in desperate need of it. He came to make people who are dead alive. Had he come as they expected, he had to come on what? A horse. Not a donkey. He had to come on a horse. And it had been a white horse and likely an Arabian horse, one of those magnificent horses that you see kings riding. But he wasn't on that. He was on a donkey. And they knew, I mean, the Romans used Calvaries to oppress people. They would have known the symbol of a horse. The symbol of a horse was war. So what does Jesus do? He he chooses a donkey to express that he is going to be a suffering servant. I mean, this is is the first mass indication that people are going to get. This is not going to be any normal king. He's coming to serve. He's coming in humility. He's coming in peace. He is called the Prince of Peace. He's not going to bring a sword. He's not going to bring justice. Not this time. He's bringing grace. He's bringing love. He is going to be gentle. He had always been gentle. And that's why he says, fear not. And I say to you, fear not. Don't be afraid of Jesus. Go to Jesus. Love him. Trust him. Follow him. He is like no other king. He did not come in all the pomp and circumstance of an earthly king. And he he does not reign in the power of an earthly king. He entered that city lowly and meek with the intention of what? Of dying. To die for the souls of many. Now don't think for a moment he didn't come in power. He came in great power. And don't think for a moment he didn't come to conquer. He did come to conquer. He came to conquer sin and death and the human heart, but not with a sword. He came with grace and love. That's what makes the story of the gospel so incredible. He moved with great power upon the human heart. And he did it with an inexpressible love on the cross. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they didn't get it at first. Many don't. But then the Holy Spirit came upon them. And remember it said that the Spirit will remind you of all the things that were taught and all that had happened. And so they get it. The Holy Spirit comes and they get it. And the Spirit of God is doing that same thing today. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and, and he enables us to understand these things. And that's, that's how he saves as well. 
The Spirit of God comes upon a man and with the gospel regenerates hearts and makes people alive. I had a friend of mine recently who told me a story. He was sharing the gospel with a Persian man and this Persian man was raised in a Muslim home and, and they were practicing Muslims, but he, he hated this, the, the violence and the, the, um, the aggression that he saw that, that religion take forth. And so he was given a Bible by this friend and he put the Quran aside. He started reading the Bible and the story is incredible because he started reading through the gospel narratives and he gets to this point. He's not a believer yet, but he gets to this point. And you might think this odd, but he understood it really well. And he said as soon as he heard that Jesus rode on a donkey, he believed. He said, well, why did he believe that? Because he realized that this was not a religion of the sword, but of love and grace. This was a power that was not exercised by an, by an army of men that would destroy, but by a single Savior who would give his life to redeem many. And he believed because of this narrative. He saw Christ for who he truly is. Now, I dare say, my beloved, I think that we're more like the masses. I believe we're more like the people that were there in Jerusalem and Bethany that day saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we want that Savior that is a good Savior for us according to what is good to us. We want a superhero that meets our needs. You know, when you're young, if you're raised in an unstable home, you want a superhero that's going to come to you and give you stability and unconditional love. When you get a bit older, you look for a savior to bring you friends because you're lonely, or maybe a spouse because you're lonely. If you're a married couple, unable to have children, you look to the savior to bring children. When you get a bit older, you look for that savior during times of physical illness and much pain and, and impending death and anxiety. But a savior on demand that the flesh wants, the saviors that we do, the superheroes that we want to bring into our lives, it's no savior at all, and you know that, because it leaves man upon the throne. If your savior is only someone that you bring in when you need him and you create in your own mind, that's no savior, because that savior has no power to redeem us from hell and no power to overcome sin. It leaves man upon the throne and the wreckage of sin unresolved. What man needs is a Savior who will come and speak the truth to us and say to us, we need to be saved from ourselves. We are our own worst enemies. We need a Savior who's going to come to us and enable us to once again relate to our Creator in love. And any Savior that comes into your life or any Savior that's preached to you that doesn't have the power to make things right between God and man is no Savior. He is a deceiver. This Savior, this Christ, came to restore the broken relationship between fallen man and the most holy God. That's why he came in on a donkey. That's why he came as a suffering servant. And that's why he went to the cross. The Savior we need must be righteous and humble. The Savior we we need must be all-powerful and simultaneously meek. The Savior that you need is not the one that's going to get you the job that you want or the house that you want to live in. The Savior that you need is a Savior who will bring a gospel of grace through faith in a Savior, specifically Christ. I know we want the other superhero, right? We want the superhero that's going to come and fix our immediate need and make our family well 
and provide that job. But your greatest problem is not your family, it's not your job, it's not the economy or, or politics, it's your heart. And only a Savior like this can render the heart well. This is the type of king that Jesus is. He is a messianic savior that comes humbly on the back of a donkey to seek and save and serve the lost. To come to you and say to you, and for you to say to your friends, don't be afraid. He didn't come the first time with a sword. He didn't come in justice. He came in grace and mercy. And that's why we can take the gospel to lost and we can beseech people to come to Christ. Do you, do you portray Christ like this? This glorious, humble, loving servant. He came to do the work necessary to redeem God's people. And that leads us to our second point, because you say, well, who is that exactly? I mean, we see this king more clearly, that he came as a suffering servant to do the unthinkable, which is die on our behalf. But who did he die for? Did he die for everybody? Did he die for some? I mean, who... Whose king is this? Who belongs to him? Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. They're talking to one another. They were arguing amongst themselves. Some were saying, kill him now. Others were saying, you know, let him go. He's fine. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. This is such a weird piece of scripture. And it's in a weird place. If we don't understand the context, it doesn't make any sense. But the context is profound. The Jewish leaders, they get that Jesus now is so popular, they can't just, they were just going to arrest him. They said, remember, tell us if you see him. If you see him, we'll arrest him and then we'll kill him. They can't do that anymore. I mean, this man has tens of thousands of people shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they have to change their plan. They have to go to a night operation. They have to arrest him when no one's around, which is exactly what they do. But they say something utterly profound. They're using hyperbole, but they're actually right. They say, look, the world has gone after him. And John uses that beautiful irony once again. Out of the mouth of our Lord's enemies, they are prophesying to what the gospel is going to do because Christ is going to die, he is going to rise, and then the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And so the world literally follows Jesus. You say, well, not every person, no, but every tribe, every tongue, and every nation after the Lord. The apostle tells us about these Greeks, these Gentiles, they're non-Jews. They were coming to the feast of Passover because they were likely proselytized. They, they were Jewish converts. They had given up paganism, and they were now following uh, the belief system of, of the Jews. And they, they come to him, and they say, we want to see this Jesus. Now, that, that would have been a hard request, right? I mean, he's now got thousands of people around him, and they say, we want to see this Jesus. And so Philip goes to Andrew, thinking, well, maybe Andrew will have a good answer. And so Andrew says, I don't know, let's go ask the Lord. So Philip and Andrew both go to Jesus And they say, hey, we got these guys, these Gentiles, these Greeks who want to come and they want to see you. And the Lord gives us the strangest answer. And it's beautiful at the same time. Look at verse 23. I want you you to see he's pointing them to the cross. This is his answer. He doesn't say come. He doesn't say send them away. 
He says in verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This cryptic response is glorious news for any man who's dead in his sins and wants to be made alive. Jesus is saying, listen, they're going to see me. That door of grace is still open for Jew and Gentile. And he's expanding for Philip and Andrew and soon for the world to see. He didn't just come as a Jewish Messiah. He came as a Savior for the world. And these Gentiles that want to see him are representing that for us. Look again, over and over, he said, "What the hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come until right now, right? The hour has come. For what? Look at the text. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified. Not by conquering the Romans and establishing an earthly kingdom as the people wanted. The Son of Man came to be glorified in his death and his resurrection. And this was going to be that week. I mean, we're in the Passion Week now. Time and time again, he said, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And he says, now is the time. He's going to be, you know, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be brutally beaten. He's going to be sentenced unjustly. He's going to be nailed to a cross, and he's going to die on that cross. Then they're going to take his body, and they're going to put his body in a tomb, just as that, 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 Wheat seed goes into the earth. He goes into the tomb. And then on the third day, we know this, he rises from the dead. And Christ is saying, that's how I want these Greeks to see me. That's how I want the Jews to see me. We have no idea why they were coming to him. Maybe, I mean, this guy, he's popular. He's entertaining. We have no idea. Jesus says, I want them to come to me as the risen Savior. I want them to come, Jesus is saying, as I truly am. Is not just a meek and mild king of Israel, but as the savior of the world. Gentiles too. He's a global Messiah. And, and my beloved, that, that, that wasn't new. He didn't come up with that during his life. That was prophesied to centuries before that this savior, this superhero that God was going to send wasn't just going to be for the nation of Israel. It was for all mankind. You don't believe me. Galatians 3.8 and the scripture, foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to who? To Abraham, saying this, In you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. So this prophecy goes all the way back to the patriarchs, the very beginning of the covenant God made with Abraham, Jew and Gentile. Isaiah 45, 22, God said, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I love this. He says, for I am God and there is no other. There's no other God. There's no other God. The God of the Jews is the God of the Gentiles. And so from the very beginning, the plan was for God to bless the nation of Israel and through the tribe of Judah, through the son of David, the king would come and he came. He came. You know, we celebrate that at Christmas time, and we celebrated Easter, but the fact that the Son of God would actually come and fulfill these prophecies meaning, means that we Gentiles and Jew alike have hope. That we have hope in what He has to offer, and that is salvation through His death and resurrection. Look at verse 24. Jesus said, Truly, truly, verily, verily, here's the important piece. Don't miss it, right? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, most of us were not raised in an agrarian culture. Most of us don't even know how to plant uh, a seed of grass, let alone a seed of wheat. I'm not insulting you. That's just, I mean, most people, we just aren't there. But they got it. I mean, they understood that this seed of wheat needs to go into the earth and it needs to die. It literally needs to split open so that that power inside that seed, which is also given by God, can actually produce wheat to such an extent that it can be gathered into a sheaf and actually used to produce fruit. And what I love is this is God's design, part of his creation to reveal to us the need for Christ to die, the need for us to die. It's everywhere. Anywhere you see anything growing, that process of germination started with death before it became alive. It's everywhere. You talk about God declaring his glory and the gospel through through his creation. It's everywhere. He uses this metaphor to point to Christ and to point to the gospel. We preach and teach a gospel of life, but we know that the only way it became a gospel of life is it started with death. Specifically, it started with the death of a Savior that Jesus Christ had to die. He had to die our death so he could give us his life. That's the great exchange that the perfect man who deserved adoration and praise and and righteous forever, the perfect man would have to go into the ground like the seed. He'd have to die so that we, the imperfect men, those sinful through and through who deserve punishment and not righteousness and not the pleasure of God can receive it. And like the grain of wheat, Christ did that. As the man, he'd have been alone. You know that. There's, that's an important part of that verse. Look again. It says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Christ would have remained alone. Alone as what? As the only righteous man to live. But that wasn't God's plan. For Christ dying, he then would not be alone. And I don't mean that alone as in away from the Father and the Spirit. He's never been alone. It's that he's always been part of the Trinity. But as a man... So what happened? Well, he died, and then he bore much fruit. He then took dead men with the Spirit of Christ and made them alive. So you have what? Now, after centuries, you have what? You have thousands, certainly, maybe millions of saints, those who have been saved by grace, fruit from his death. So there is a a righteousness of people. We call it the church, his people. His body entered the earth, and Augustine said, the most fertile grain of wheat ever known to man. Because when his body went in, and when it rose, it brought forth a harvest, not of wheat and not of grapes, but of souls of people who were dead that now became alive. That's quite a seed. Only Christ. Christ set in motion a harvest unknown in human history. I'm talking about real people. I'm talking about us. At one point in time, you were dead. And by God's grace, he made you alive. And the only reason he was able to make you alive is because Christ died first. He was the seed. And from you, much fruit. Now, some of you struggle with knowing that you are really that fruit. Still today, some of you, after years of walking with the Lord, saying, how do I know? I wake up and I think there's no way 
No way God's going to save me. How can you know you're a citizen in this kingdom of this king? It's actually in this passage. There are two character traits of all believers, all believers. And then there are two promises, and we'll close on those because they are extraordinary, and I want you to soar out of here. The promises are extraordinary. Let's look at the two character traits first. Say, well, how do I know I know him? How do I know I'm the fruit that was born from his sacrifice? Look at verse 25. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, that's a Semitic expression that doesn't mean you're supposed to hate life. This is one of those passages that you can really ruin your life with, okay? It is a a Semitic expression that was understood. It talks about a priority of love and priority of love relationship. It does not mean that you're to wake up every day with a scowl on your face, hating life, and saying, because I hate my life, I'm going to be saved, right? The Bible doesn't teach that. So you know that can't be right. We must hate sin. We must hate sin. When he's talking about hating our life or loving our life, he's saying this, and it's really quite simple, that your greatest love, your greatest desire, your greatest passion, your greatest motivation has to be God. God has to have captivated your heart completely. And then what does that do? That means it takes life and all the things of life, security, prosperity, comfort, entertainment, all those things which are good, and it puts them in their proper place. So your greatest love is not prosperity or not security. It's God. That means your your deepest longing is for Him. So you won't love this life. You'll love Him. That means you'll hold on loosely to the things of this life. It means this. The Christian will have a greater love and obedience for Jesus Christ than he or she will for the boss or parents, or friends. It means if you're a Christian, your heart will be so captivated by God that you'll, I know this is going to be hard, you'll have a greater passion and desire for praising Him than your favorite sports team. And if you find that in conflict, there's idolatry. You see, well, I love God and I love the warriors. Then they're, all, they're co-equal. Well, they're not. You must love God most. It means you must have a deeper hunger for God's word. You might see Christ than you do for that that filet mignon or that chocolate cake or whatever it is that gets your stomach going. He must be first. And if you love this life or the things of this life more than you love the Savior then you've already lost it. Look at it. It says, whoever loves his life loses it. You've already lost it. You've already lost it. You've never had it if you love the things of this world more than Christ. It doesn't mean you hate the things of this world. My, my loving Christ doesn't mean I hate my wife. It means I love Christ more than my wife. My hating this world doesn't mean I, I hate my job and then I hate my boss. It means I love Christ more than my boss and more than my job. You see the priority? It's got to be there, saints. And we, when we stumble and when we fall, it's because we take the love of God and we invert it and we bring up something else. If you cling to that which is of this life, you will perish because this life will perish. 
you will perish because this life will perish. But Jesus says, whoever hates his life in this world, and that means this, whoever puts family and work and friends and popularity and prosperity and growth and friendships, whoever puts all those things, most of which are blessings from God, whoever puts those in their proper place, in their right place, enjoying them, many of them as blessings from God, but not making idols out of them. Jesus says, whoever does that will keep life. You'll have eternal life. Why? Do you know why? It's not a reward system. He's not saying, you know, if you, if you love me most and you love these things less and you keep it in the right order, then I'm going to give you a prize. It's not it. He's saying, if you love me most, then I am your God and you can't lose me. We will have eternal life because if we love God most, we already have it now. You know that, right? Eternal life is not just this place we're going to go to, and it's not just, you know, being in the presence of the angels and the saints and the community forever and ever. It is God. It is Christ. And so he can say, if if you don't love this life and you love me most, then you will have me because you have me now and you'll have me forever. Can't lose it. Can't lose that which is eternal. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It is one of the most sharp verses that comes out of Jesus' mouth. But when he says it, he, when he means re- renounce, he's saying renounce all those things you love more than me. Good and bad. Renounce them. Recognize them as idols. Bring them before the cross and crucify them. And Jesus is saying exclusively, love me most. And you want to. You ought to want to. You don't love God the most. You love something else the most, and it is wicked. And it will tear you apart, and it certainly will destroy you because it will perish. And if it is your God, you will perish. You can't say you love Jesus and not serve him. You can't say that Christ is your Lord and not follow him. Those statements contradict each other. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. Not if you keep my commandments, I will love you. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Why? You'll want to. You'll want to, saints. Your life will be singularly driven by your desire to honor and glorify and love God. And God says, live like this. You say, I want to live like this. I don't do it very well, but you'll want to. And that'll drive you each and every day. You will pursue righteousness and you'll pursue holiness. And when you screw up, and you will, because you love God so much, you'll go to him and you'll say, Lord, forgive me. And you know what? He'll forgive you. And then you can walk in the path of righteousness again. And then five minutes later, you have to do the same thing because we're constantly sinning. But God is so gracious. He's gentle and he forgives when we confess our sins He forgives us of our sins and he cleanses us and he purifies us again and again and again. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Are you walking in the Lord, saints? Are you walking in the Lord? So you say, if I'm captivated by the Lord and I'm following him, albeit feebly at times, then I know him. I say, yes, you know him. You know him. This walk in Christ is not about being perfect. Not here. You're called to that, but you won't be. 
It's about your affections. Are your affections in order? Do they have the right priority? Is God first? I doubt there's not a soul in this room that knows Christ, doesn't know Christ, doesn't have some love for God in some capacity. But if you love something or someone more than God, that is a fatal love. We all agree on that. Yes, amen? All right. So, if, you, if God has captivated your heart and he is your deepest longing, your greatest love, your greatest desire, you're, you're motivated by him in all that you do. Everything you do is motivated by him. Whether you eat or drink is motivated by him. And you can say with some truth, I'm following, I'm striving, I'm pursuing not to be loved but because I am loved and not to earn my salvation but because I am already saved. Then that's a glorious thing for you and I praise God for that. Jesus then gives us two promises here. Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And here you go, promise number one, where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, promise number two, the Father will honor him. Promise number one, where I am, Jesus said, there will my servant be also. You know what that means? That means that when you're serving Christ now, he is present. And, and you say, well, he's omnipresent. I'm talking about present in a very real, intimate, relational way. In your service, he is serving. He is with you intimately. And that means every moment of every day, you have an opportunity to have the fellowship and the intimacy of the living God with you. With you when you're cleaning your house. Moms, when you're feeding your babies and changing their diapers. Men, when you're at work and you're tired. Children, when you're in school and you're laboring. If you're serving God in those times and whatever you do, and you can serve him at all times, then Christ is present in a very real and intimate way. That is a, that is a promise worth chewing on. When you say, why am I doing this? This mundane task, where is the glory in it? You've missed it. If you don't realize Christ is there with you, anytime you serve in his name, he is present. He is serving with you. And I do believe, listen closely, saints. I do believe that one of the reasons so many Christians muddle through this life filled with anxiety and lack of joy and lack of peace is because they miss this singular teaching so many Christians and people who are truly saved are still so busy serving themselves, serving their flesh, trying to, trying to bring some joy and some satisfaction other than Christ. And here's the great lie right in the church today. If, if you get that, that job that's secure and pays six figures, then you'll have your joy. If you can find that perfect someone, you're alone, that perfect someone, then you'll, you'll have contentment. If I can just get a few friends and I'm lonely, then I'll know what real peace is. The harder you press into those things, rather than pressing into Christ as a believer, the more dissatisfied you will be. Why? Do you know why? Remember, if you're saved by God's grace and you know Christ, then your greatest love is Jesus Christ. He is to satisfy you through and through. So if, if, you, if you know him and you're constantly chasing after that relationship or that job or that prospect, you're constantly going, you're always going to be dissatisfied. And the harder you press towards those things, the more dissatisfied you'll be. Why? 
Jesus says, if you serve me and you follow me, I'll be with you. And then you get it, right? You go, oh, wait a minute. I want to be where he is because I love him most. And if I am where he is, then I'll be most satisfied and I'll be most happy and most at peace. That makes sense. If you love Christ most, then when you're with him personally and intimately, there'll be joy unspeakable, peace unspeakable, regardless of the circumstances. So if you find yourself joyless and contentless and lacking in peace, ask yourself, what are you running after? Believer, what are you running after? Are you, just, are you trying to get that next best thing? Stop. Turn around. Press back into Christ. And the joy you once had will come back. The peace you once knew will come back. And there'll be a contentment in your heart. Unlike anything you could possibly know by chasing after the things of this world. This promise is eternal, though. Christ is saying, you can have me now, follow me now, love me now, serve me now, I'll be with you now, I'll be with you intimately now, and that's forever. Remember Christ said, where I will be, you will be. You're going to come with me. Remember there, when he was leaving, the disciples says, where are you going to go, Lord? We, we don't know where you're going. He says, I'm going to bring you with me, and we're going to be together forever. In fact, he said in John 17, 24, in his high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they also, his disciples, you, me, he says, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That means you get to be with the lover of your soul, your deepest desire, your deepest passion, the person whom you have submitted your life to forever. So when he says, I'll be with you, he means it. And it never goes away. And if you know Christ and you love Christ, there is no more exciting thought than that, than you being with the love of your soul forever because you love him most and you just want to be with him. You should take the job, take the status, take, the, take it all. If I have him and I get him and I get to keep him forever, I take it all. You see, I'm still not satisfied. Last one and I'll close. Look at, verse, look at the latter part of verse 26. It's so over the top. This makes my head split wide open. It's so over the top. This messianic promise, if it is true, it takes all my faith to believe it because it's so extreme. Look at the latter part of verse 26. Not only does Jesus say, if you serve me and you follow me and you love me, I'll be with you now and forever. Enough. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Did you hear that, sinner? Did you hear that? If you're a sinner saved by grace, <laughs> listen to this. If you're a sinner saved by great grace, the creator of the universe is going, the creator of the universe, God Almighty is going to honor you. You say, I'm supposed to be honoring him. Yes, you are, and yes, you do in Christ. But he says, I'm going to honor you. Let's just stop for a minute and think about the things that in our culture we esteem so high. I mean, think about some of the major honors that make their way into our ears. If you're in the music field, you want a Grammy, right? Music and television, you want an Oscar or a, what's the other one? Thank you, an Emmy. If you're in sports, you'll want a Vince Lombardi trophy, a Larry O'Brien trophy. You might want a Heisman, you want, want the Stanley Cup. 
most of us just want to be honored by people we know. We want to be honored by our parents. We want to be honored by our friends. Jesus is saying that in the presence of the angels, in the presence of all the saints, that God the Father is going to honor you. He's going to call you before his throne in Christ and by name say, well done, good and faithful servant. (laughs) Maybe it's just me. I can't. This is unbelievable. 1 Samuel 2.30, the Lord declares, those who honor me, I will honor them. You say, well, why would God honor me? I know me. I know my heart. I don't deserve to be honored by anybody. You're wrong in Christ. You're wrong in Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, God sees you as you truly are. And that is beautiful and holy and blameless and radiant and glorious and powerful and faithful and true. That's you in Christ. And so when he brings you before him, He doesn't honor you because of your inherent worthiness. Quite the opposite. He honors you because of the worthiness that you've inherited from Christ. And you have in Christ. I want you to contemplate the Father calling you by name and saying, you, I honor you. This is not pie-in-the-sky mythology. This is the truth of God. You see this, King? You see this king who entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. You see him as the suffering servant who came to die so that you might live. Came to die that you might become his. That you might love him. And that one day by his power and strength that that God might honor you. There's There's no greater narrative than this. To know him and to enjoy him. I would be remiss as a pastor if I did not close on this last thought. One day, Christ will come again in all the glory of the Father. And he will come on that great white horse. He will come just as they expected the first time. He will come in power. He will come with a sword. He will come in justice. And the Bible says he will wage war. He will be that superhero Everyone expected Revelation 19.11. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. That's Christ. And in Him, righteousness, He judges and makes war. That means that there's a time, and it's rapidly approaching, when the opportunity to be saved will end. And for all mankind, great fear will fall upon Him. wrath of God will be poured out. Unlike the superheroes who save everybody, Jesus Christ will come and save those who repent and believe and follow him. The rest will perish. The rest will experience the justice and the wrath of a most holy God. They will do so. They will experience that because they refuse to be saved. Christ came to save Jew and Gentile alike, all sinner. All sinners God calls to repent and believe. Those who experience God's wrath and God's justice refuse to be saved. They say, we will not be saved by Christ. 
they put their hope in another Savior, a false Savior. I pray that if you are in that camp, that you would hear of this gracious, merciful, donkey-riding Savior that comes to you this morning and says, do not be afraid. I offer mercy and grace to your sinful, dead heart. And Christ calls you, I call you as his servant to come to him this morning. Come into the arms of Christ. Gave up everything so that we might live. And he calls you to live. Amen? How could your son come in such a humble, meek manner? How could he? He's the creator of the universe. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Yet he came on a donkey in humility to die. Father, show us him as he really is. Show us the mercy and grace that he poured out on the cross for sinners like us. Captivate our hearts this morning, I pray. We're still so far from you, Lord. We still don't see you well. Many of us are still so asleep. So many still chasing after the things of this world, thinking if they just had that one more thing. We know it's a lie. We've tried it and it fails. Lord, capture our hearts again this morning, I pray. Renew your steadfast love for us, I pray. Show us the love that you have for us in Christ. Show us this morning, Lord, that we might know that we are redeemed and live like a redeemed people. I pray, Father, that we would take this great news, this great gospel to our friends and our family and our co-workers and our neighbors, that they too might hear of this gracious, suffering servant who gave his life on a cross for many. They too might repent and believe. They too might be called into this love relationship with you and the one day be honored by you. Father, we know that your Holy Spirit must do this work, and so we ask that you would. We ask that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and minds. Make us into the holy people you call us to be, that Christ might be glorified. In his name, amen.